With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Heavy metal. The way it was meant to be.
All right, welcome back to Heavy Metal Mayhem's Metal Matinee. It's our 500th episode. It's almost five years ago we started the show. Uh, it's coming up this September. So I figured for the 500th show, I kind of play music that meant things to me over my lifetime listening to hard rock and heavy metal. And that was definitely the first hard rock band I was ever into, and that was Kiss with King of the Nighttime World. I think most people that were born in the mid-60s uh, you know, kind of grew up going into music for the first time in the 70s. I think Kiss was the first band they got into, you know? And uh, I remember I grew up in a three-family house in Brooklyn. I had my cousins downstairs for me, my grandparents on the top floor, and uh, my best friend next door, Joe, uh, he had two brothers that were about the same age as my cousins, which were a lot older than we were. And, uh, you know, we used to hear them playing Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. But, you know, because we were little kids, uh, they were too cool to talk to us and tell us, you know, what the music was about and who it was. So we kind of had to figure it out on our own. And I remember sneaking over to uh, Joey's house many times when his brothers weren't home and we would go down to the basement and dig up his brother's Kiss records and play them. And, man, we were diehard Kiss fans in the 70s from around 75 on. I mean, we had the Mego dolls, uh, the Kiss makeup kits. We used to put the makeup on. They used to dress up as Jean. Joey would always be ace, and we'd roll skate around the neighborhood. And those were the good days. The roller skates had four wheels on them instead of these one blades, which are impossible for people like us to use and stand up on. But, you know, as the 70s went on, you know, we discovered ACDC and Van Halen and, you know, Judas Priest and all of these other bands slowly but surely by, you know, getting around to, like, our neighborhood record stores or finding albums lying around our family's house. That was about the only way we could do it back then. There was no internet and other ways of finding new music, but that's the way it goes. And, you know, I remember my cousins playing Black Sabbath downstairs, and it was paranoid, but I didn't know who the band was at the time or what they were about. I remember asking my cousin, you know, who was that band you were playing? He was like, oh, that's a band Black Sabbath. I was like, oh, great. And I remember when I was like 13, I was old enough to go to the record store on my own in the neighborhood. I went in there, and I asked the guy, like, you know, uh, this band Black Sabbath, and he gave me an album, and I went home, and I put it on, and I was like, oh, this is great, man, but this doesn't sound like the guy who, you know, who was singing on the record my cousin was playing. And, you know, that was when Heaven and Hell came out and Ronnie was in the band. And that was like my first intro, really, to Black Sabbath, like, you know, on my own. And I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, I don't know, maybe the guy had, my cousin said, Ozzy, maybe this is the guy's real name, uh, Ronnie James. You know, we didn't know. We had no information back then. You know, there were very few magazines writing about this stuff. And so I remember getting the Black Sabbath record, Heaven and Hell. And uh, that just blew me away, and that kind of got me into Black Sabbath, and, and you know, moving me up into a little harder stuff as compared to Kiss. So, off that first record I bought on my own, Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell, here's the title track.
by Rainbow with Power. And just like I was saying earlier about with Black Sabbath, my cousins were playing Paranoid downstairs in the room. I used to hear it. And, you know, they told me it was Black Sabbath. Like, you know, I didn't know who was in the band, any names of members. I was 11 years old maybe at the time, maybe 12. You know, so I remember going to the store, like I said, and buying the Heaven and Hell and had a different singer on there. And then when I went back, and this is a record store in my neighborhood called The Music Stop on 86th Street. And, you know, it was a neighborhood record store, but they kind of catered to everything. And, you know, disco was big at the time and dance music, so they didn't really pay much attention to the rock and heavy metal, you know, people. And the people that worked there really didn't know that much about the bands. But I remember going in there one day and saying, this doesn't sound like, you know, the band I'm looking for has a different singer. And he's like, oh, you want Rainbow. That guy who's singing Rainbow. I was like, okay, so the first Rainbow record I bought was Straight Between the Eyes, and that had Joel and Turner on there, not Ronnie James Dio. So it's like, you know, one mistake led to another, but it also brought all these bands into my life. And then I discovered Hit Parader and, and Cream Magazine, and, you know, it kind of caught up on, like, what was going on and who these bands were and who the members, you know, what different members were. And I remember it was the summer, well, almost the summer of 1980, and uh, right before I turned 13 years old. And I'm trying to do this in chronological order, but it's kind of hard because one song kind of lends itself to another, so I'm jumping a little bit. But, you know, you get the gist of it. And I remember going to Long Island to a barbecue at a, a friend of my father's house that he worked with, and the kid was playing this, this song. And I was like, wow, I go, that, that voice sounds familiar. I go, that sounds like the guy that, my, that was on a record that my cousin was playing, you know, this been Black Sabbath. And he was like, yeah, this was a singer from Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne. He's on his own now. He has, you know, he has his own band, and this is the first record. It just came out. And he was playing the Blizzard of Oz. So I was like, wow, I mean, like it, took all, it took like two years to find out you know, who he was and what it was about and what he had going on. And so I finally came across Ozzy and the Blizzard of Oz. And, you know, I remember going home and I can't remember the station in New York at the time. I think today it's, I think it was 92.3. Today I think it's KTU. It's a disco station. Maybe it was NEW back in the day, which is a rock station. But there was a show called Album Side Sunday. I don't remember who hosted it, but they would play the entire side of one record. And that same weekend that I was home, listening, my friend calls me up, Joey Nix, is like, listen, I think this is the guy you were talking about, if this is the whole record. And they played the entire first side of the Blizzard of Oz. I mean, where do you get that? You don't even get that today on real rock stations. They don't even play, like, you know, whole side albums and especially something like Ozzy, which was, you know, pretty hard back then. So I was like, wow, yeah, this is definitely it. You know, the guy told me about it one hour, and I remember running out and getting that record. And I was just like blown away. To me, I felt like I discovered something that was just mine. It was like on the ground. You know, Ozzy wasn't, even though he was from Black Sabbath and people knew him, you know, that wasn't the biggest album in the world when it came out at the time. So I felt it was kind of my own. And I remember that summer, like I said, I think it was 12 years old. I went away to uh, the Rockin' Horse Ranch upstate with the camp I was in, Young People's Day Camp. I had left the year before because I felt like I was going to be a teenager. I was too old to go to camp, but they had a weekend getaway. I, my sister was still in camp, so I went with Joey, my next-door neighbor, my good friend JoJo. We all went up there, got a cabin together for the weekend with the camp. And I remember falling in love with this girl, even though I never spoke to her, never said a word to her. <laughs> couldn't figure out why she wouldn't even acknowledge me. But, you know, to, to be 12 and stupid again, and it's better than being 46 and stupid, right? But good times. And I remember sitting on a bench near the lake one night, all depressed because the love of my life didn't even know who I was. And she came and sat next to me. And she says, what are you listening to? And I said, oh, it's this guy Ozzy Osbourne. She goes, can I listen? And we sat on that bench. It felt like for hours and hours and hours. And we shared the headphone on the old Walkman set, the old Iowa Walkman. One, one earbud each. Well, it was earbuds back then. They were all headsets. And I remember Ozzy was on, and it was goodbye to romance. So here's the young love. Tomorrow will 
Right, if you haven't tuned out after Night Range and the other songs I've been playing, we're taking a trip down the, the musical memory lane of mine. And we kind of left off with Ozzy and the Blizzard of Oz record. And, you know, like, you know, comic books have, like, like the Silver Age, the Golden Age. Well, to me, like, 80 to 83 was, like, the Golden Age of heavy metal to me because all these bands are just coming out. I mean, I was telling my, my friend Mike, my guitar player Mike in the chat room, you know, I never played this much mainstream music ever in the five years I do this show. This is all about the underground. But back then in the early 80s, you know, this was before Metallica, before Slayer, Exodus, all the real heavy bands came out. And, you know, I discovered quite right naturally because, you know, Randy Rose was in Ozzy and I wanted to find out more about the band. I remember taking a trip at the Tower Records in Manhattan. And uh, during those early years in the 80s, that's when I met, like, my best friends and the friends that I kind of grew up with and I'm still friends with till today. Uh, Eddie, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, Dr. Ed Mavini, he passed on. His brother Tommy, my friend Glenn, Frank, you know, we hung out all the time. My friend Pat, we were like best buddies until today we still are. And during those years back then, you know, we would travel out into the village and go look for records. I remember we went to Tower Records and I found the first two Quiet Riot records. Uh, they were, forget it, they were like imports from Japan. They were a fortune. They were like 20-something dollars, which was a lot of money back in the early 80s. And my friend Eddie found the price gun on the floor on Tower Records, and we took it. And every week that we went there, we would change all the prices on the records from like 20 or $30 down to $1.99. So we were able to afford all these great bootlegs and, and import records back in the day. It's amazing, you know? So that's how I got into Quiet Ride. And they were actually the first band I ever saw live at Lamore in Brooklyn. It was uh, the winter of 83. I went Glenn and his two friends, and uh, I remember buying a ticket, and it says, you know, doors open at 6 o'clock, so we thought the show was going to start at that time, and we got there like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, because we thought there was going to be a line around the block to see Quiet Right, and they really didn't break big yet at that time, Come Off Field the Noise didn't hit the airwaves, this was before the Us Festival, when they really exploded, and the album took off, and I remember Palace opened up for them, and it was... Two o'clock in the afternoon. If you ever been to Lamar, there was uh, the front door was here and the back door was like maybe thirty feet away, and we were sitting on the step. And I remember the car pulled up and the band got out of the car, and we met the whole band and we were scrounging on the ground for like you know paper from the sign things for us. And I remember Frankie and Rudy came over and they were really cool and they signed everything. They actually asked us a question or two, which was nice. Carlos Cavazo came by, and here comes Kevin Dubrow out of the back of the car with a girl on each arm, the sunglasses on. I could cool it and shit, like he could care less even be bothered with us. But he did sign the paper with a little bit of an attitude. And it's a shame to talk about that now because the man is dead. But we did get to meet them. And I remember sitting there and some guy came up to us. He goes, oh, what are you guys doing? I'm like, well, we're waiting to come to see Quiet Right. He goes, well, the doors are open at 6.30. They won't be on until about 1, 2 o'clock morning. Never been to a show and never been to Lamar where, you know, the headline band could come on at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. We were like, holy shit. He goes, plus, you guys aren't going to get in. You have to be 18 or older. You know, so I meant like being like we were so disappointed that we bought these tickets. We couldn't see the band they were telling us because we weren't old enough to get into the club. And on top of that, we had to be home at 11 o'clock at night. We, we were like, you know, kids. So I was like, you know what? We kept waiting it out, waiting it out. And the guy says, you know what? I can get you in the back door if, you know, you give me a little bit of money. So we scrounged up like $10 between us. I had nothing left. We gave the guy the money and two of my friends didn't want to wait because they were afraid they were going to get in trouble with their parents because it was a late show. And myself and Glenn, we snuck in at the back door with the guy, and we got to see Talos, which, I mean, I remember seeing Billy Sheenan on stage playing that bass. 
I thought he was like a guitar player. It just blew me away. It was incredible. I remember Quiet Riot came on. It had to be after 1 o'clock in the morning. And my friend's like, I'm leaving. I'm going to get in trouble. we got to get home at a certain time. I'm like, you know what? I said, by the time I get home, I'm going to be 15 minutes late. My father's going to kill me anyway. I may as well just stay out the whole night and take the beating anyway in the morning. So I did exactly that. I remember walking home. My parents are both sitting there in the door waiting for me to come through that door. What a nightmare. But I got to see a great show. had a great time. We followed up with Motley Crue. I remember getting into the crew when I bought that first record. I still have the original Leather Records version uh, that the band came out. And they were like cooler than hell, man. I mean, they made a video of Nicky Six. His legs are going up on fire. They were dressed in leather. There was nothing cooler than that. You know, to me, this is like underground back then. And I played a song off of Shadow of, uh, of the Devil. I played Knock Em Dead Kid. And I remember when that record came out with the pentagram on the cover. We were so into it. We used to walk around blasting that tune out of our boombox, walking around 86th Street in Brooklyn. And that was like the coolest thing because I grew up in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. That was like an all-Italian cuisine neighborhood. I mean, it was like disco rule supreme through the 70s and 80s over there. So, you know, we kind of stood out. And when you found somebody who did the same music as you, you became friends automatically. It was by default. And I remember all of us playing that all the time. And just like anything else, you know, once Motley Crue, that album took off and they made it big, we abandoned them. Because that's what we did. We supported bands while they were on the ground, or at least until nobody knew about them. And once they made it, we just dropped them like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> that's the way life was. And I followed that up with some Night Ranger with Sister Christian, which was a little light in the loaf, as I know. But that song was playing when I met my first girlfriend, Christine. And, you know, that was the love of my life again back then. <laughs> I was 15 years old. Nothing was better than that. And that song was on the radio all the time. So that's why I had to get that on here. Even though that was what I heard when I met him playing, the song I really wanted to play was this one.
trading, you know, demos on bootlegs were a big thing, and I started to set off a jackhammer. That was the first demo tape I ever got, uh, Lethal Injection. I don't remember if I bought it in Bleaker Bombs in the village or if some fanzine had it there, and I wrote to them and paid for it, but I remember that blowing me away. I was like, wow, this is so good, and you know, Chris Sod, who sang on that first demo tape, he disappeared when the second one came out, um, but he went on to play in a lot of bands there. I mean, for years, you didn't hear anything from the guy, you know, but later on, he wound up popping up in Life's Blood, uh, Medicine Black, Mental Abuse, New York City Breakdown, a lot of great hardcore bands from, from back in the day uh, playing guitar for most of them. Uh, and right after that, we followed it up with Chaos, another great Brooklyn band. That song is Gates of Hell. And, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, like I said, even though it was, it was you know, it was a disco place and a, a cuisine area, but we had Lamore, the rock capital of Brooklyn. Every band played at Lamore. I don't care who they were. I mean, even the big A-list bands went there and played at one point or another, either in a different name or... You know, like a sideshow or something, but every group that came through town played at that place, and we saw bands for the first time there. It was amazing. I spent every year hanging out at that place. Like, you know, the time I was like 14 years old up until like I was 20. We were there all the time, and it was a great place. We were able to go to the village and get your fake IDs at that store. I, can't, I think it was called Butterflies. I don't remember. <laughs> get your fake college IDs and show it to the guy. And after a couple of months of going, they knew who you were, and they let you in anyway. And just being in there with those great waitresses, especially Dizzy, man, it was a pleasure seeing her all the time. We had a blast in that place. Uh, the guy Johnny used to work in the bathroom, you know, uh, giving you your cologne and that. You know, the drinks were expensive. I mean, you think it was $5 for a beer back then. You know, this was the mid-'80s. I mean, you don't even pay that much today in some clubs or bars. But I remember Eddie and I used to walk there every week to save money, and we would stop at the local liquor store and buy a bottle of that good old Tango, <laughs> that watered-down mix of vodka and orange juice, and uh, get drunk on that before we went there. And we used to have a blast. And we came across so many bands in that place. And I'm going to get another set on of groups from there, but – one of the first ones was a band called Tempest, and you've heard us talk about them on the show many times before in the past because it's my co-host Tommy's band. These guys were amazing, and I'm so happy that, you know, last year they decided to get back together. They're rehearsing right now, and hopefully we'll get some live shows by the band and even some new music. And I know I keep pestering Tommy to re-record some of that old stuff and maybe try to get it out on, 
on record these days. You know, the technology we had back in the 80s wasn't that great. Those bands recorded on four or eight tracks. You know, we did it quick because we didn't have the money. So it would be amazing to hear all those Killer Tempest tunes re-recorded with today's technology. And like I said, Tommy still one of my best friends until today. 30 years later, he's a co-host on the show. And we're going to offer up a bootleg from Tempest. They are this week's Metal Matinee Bootleg Artist of the Week. So if you head over to the Block Spot, there's a killer show of the band from Lemoore, back in Brooklyn, back in the day. The Kings of Metal from Brooklyn playing at the rock capital of Brooklyn. So here you go. Here's some Tempest. And then after that, we're going to, uh, uh, you know what, we're going to some other bands we played at Lemoore's during the day.
Metallica with the mechanics. I figured I'd give you a little shot of demos over there. And I remember seeing Metallica at Lamar's many times in the past. And I remember they played at the Rosalind Ballroom with Raven. And I, I want to say that was the show that Anthrax was on. I think it was Neil Turbin's last show uh, that he played with the band. So it was great to see Neil with the band. And to me, Anthrax was never the same after that. I'm a big Neil Turbin fan. I guess that's why. But that comes off the No Life to Leather demo. Probably one of the most famous demos out there. Uh, Metallica. You know, like I was saying earlier, I mean, I try to keep things chronological, but it's kind of hard. So I got a little bit of it mixed up here and there, but you know where I'm getting. And I remember, you know, the early 80s, you know, on the radio, there were a lot of college stations that played heavy metal. You would never hear that on, on regular broadcast radio. And Gene Corey was a DJ on, uh, I don't remember the name of the college. It was out of Montclair State in New Jersey back in the day. And Gene played a lot of great bands, and we picked up on a lot of them from there. Plus, going to your record store. And, you know, just looking for the coolest album cover you could find and buying that record. And then when I went into, you know, later on in life, I found out that Zigzag Records in Brooklyn, that was the place to be. I always went to the local shop in the neighborhood, but that was like a haven for metalheads. All the bands that came to play at Lamar usually did autograph sessions over there before the show. And those were the days when it was for free. You just waited online for 15, 20 minutes, got into the store, got to meet the band, take pictures, get autographs. And then they went to the club to go play. They didn't charge you $5 to take a picture or $10 for an autograph. The good old days, right? But, uh, you know, we used to go in there, and uh, they would tell you all the new music that was out there, and that's when I got my first issue of Kerrang! And then later on, Metal Forces, which to me was the Bible of heavy metal. You know, if you like metal, that was where to go the information. And on the Sunday show, we do the demolition segment, which was a tribute to the, the feature that they had in Metal Forces. So uh, we, had, we had great times, and listening to Gene play all these new bands, that's how we came across, you know, uh, Merciful Fate and, and, and Metallica and Cities and all these great bands that were coming out at the time and emerging. I mean, I, I, mean, I remember walking into Zigzag one day and, and seeing the Venom record, Black Metal. I was like, holy shit, this looks friggin' evil. You know, and then, you know, Merciful Fate came out right after that. When none's having the fun, you know, I had the picture of the, the nun on the cross. And, you know, I used to sit there for hours, my friends and I, debating, like, who was more satanic, who was more evil? Was it Venom or Merciful Fate? And I always remember the back of the Venom record when it said, Home taping is killing music, and so are Venom. So it was a choice between that, and I forgot what other record was up there at the time. I think it was Uriah Heep, and the cover looked evil, but, you know, the band just wasn't a heavy band, but back then we didn't know. So thank God Venom wore one out, and I became a lifelong Venom fan, still until today. So I'll uh, get a couple of songs on around that time. Here's Venom with Buried Alive. We are brought forth unto this world with nothing, and with nothing we depart. So I commend this body to the ground with loving remembrance. Earth to earth. Ashes to ashes.
Oh, man, Blessed Death with Omen of Fate. You know, the band wrote that song after being involved in a little car accident, and Merciful Fate was playing on the radio, and they felt that the king called them out to safety at the time. But they were a great band. I remember seeing them for the first time playing at Lamar on a Thursday night. It was like a Battle of the Bands type thing Lamar was doing back then, and they came out on stage, and you know, there were a lot of lightweight bands playing. They came out, I was like, holy shit, look at these guys. I mean, it looked like the scene out of Deliverance. And they came out, and they just blew me the fuck away. I was up there with Eddie, and we were just like banging away like you wouldn't believe. They were such an amazing band. And I remember a few weeks after that, they, they won. I think they won that competition. Uh, I'm not sure if Carnival was a part of it, or maybe Carnival won, but I know Blessed Death made it almost to the end, or maybe they did win. The mine is kind of shot after all these years, but... I remember when they played a few months later, I, I met the guys, and, you know, I, I was telling you, I got to videotape you, and I remember going to Steve's video in 86 and renting out all his video equipment, and they got me into the show, and I videotaped it, and they, I remember them coming to Brooklyn to pick up the tape, and when that first record came out, Kill or Be Killed, they thanked me on it, Mike from Brooklyn for the videotape, and I was, like, ecstatic, I was, like, thanked on a record, you know, it was, like, the ultimate, you know, <laughs> thanks for, like, a metalhead back in the day, so I want to thank those guys, and I've been their biggest fan for the last 30 years, I reached out to a few of them about coming on the show, but they're kind of not into it right now you know they're kind of living all over the place i mean some of them are still in new jersey but other members are in different parts of the country right now and uh hey you know i hope they can do something i would love to see blessed death get back together and i know i would get them right on the show that's the old bridge metal militia crew right there for you like i was saying lamore was the place to be but there were a lot of great clubs around the city at the time and you know some killer shows going on and i can remember every single one of them like they were yesterday but by the mid 80s you know going into the late 80s hand metal was like you know king of the world. I mean, Ozzy, Judas Priest, uh, even Celtic Frost, they were all changing their sound and style. They were glamming it up, and things were getting a little lightweight. The power ballad was taking over, and I just wanted to get harder and harder and heavier and heavier, and it seemed like the only way to do that was to get into the hardcore scene, and uh, I wound up becoming friends with the guys in a band called Mayhem. They later changed the name to New York City Mayhem. I met Tommy and Gordon. I forgot somewhere in Brooklyn or in the village. I think it was in Brooklyn we met doing something. And I went back to the house. They were living on the Upper East Side at the time. I think Gordon was. I think he came from some money back then. And they were rehearsing. And uh, I remember them playing. And the songs were like 10 seconds long. <laughs> and it was so freaking fast. Tommy Carroll was an amazing drummer. I mean, about as fast as you can get. And they just blew me away. And that kind of, you know, got me into the hardcore scene. And I started hanging out at CBGB's, going there for the metal matinee on the weekends. And seeing all these great bands. And at that time, I was hanging out with uh, Terry, who was a friend I had met earlier, and he was going to Brooklyn College at the time, or he was interning at Brooklyn College, and Don Kay was a DJ at Brooklyn College. He had a metal show there. And I would go hang out with Terry every Thursday and you know, Brooklyn College, and we'd listen to Don Playlist music and interview bands, and you know, it was like a great place to be. And I felt like we were like kind of an insight over there a little bit. And I remember the program director coming up to me, and, and Terry was saying, I goes, you know, my brother's into that, you know, that kind of music you guys like, that real hard and heavy stuff. You know, he was an older guy. He wasn't into the heavy metal scene. And he goes, oh, they're in a band. They're always looking for people to play with. Uh, he goes, maybe I'll bring them here next week. You can meet them. So I remember Dave coming down with Andy Guide, who was playing guitar in the band at the time. It was just the two of them. Like, oh, we need a bass player and we need a singer for the band. So I was like, oh, yeah, I said, I'll, I'll be the singer. My friend Terry was going to be the bass player. And like a week later, Terry calls up. He goes, I don't have a bass. I can't get a bass. Nobody will buy it. I don't have the money for a bass. So I asked my father if he would buy me a bass guitar. He went out and bought me this cheap bass. It was like a Hondo, I think. The cheapest guitar you could find. The neck was so bowed. It looked like a bow and arrow. The string was about four inches off the neck. <laughs> but, you know, my father came through for me. One thing I got to say about my parents, you know, I blasted my – we lived in a small, tight house. but I had grandparents upstairs, you know – 
aunt and uncle downstairs. We were attached on both sides, and I blasted my stereo to the hilt every single day from morning, noon, and night. And they never once complained or said anything about it. They just let me play my music and enjoy it. They never bothered me about the way I dressed or how I looked because they knew who I was. They knew I was just a part of a scene. I probably sent them crazy on the inside, but they never said nothing to me. So if it wasn't for them and all the support they gave me, I could have never done anything with the music like I've done over the years. But I, I just want to thank them for that. That's all I'm saying. But get back to the story. We're at the school, so I bought the bass. I became the bass player. Never knew how to play. <laughs> Not all the damn thing. Terry became the singer. And Andy would show me how to play the songs that he wrote. And that's how the band started. Uh, Stillborn. My band Stillborn. We were in a hardcore crossover band back then. And uh, around 85 we formed. And, uh, you know, Andy left a few months later. Andy was a drummer also. And I can't tell you, Andy went on the Altercation and Super Touch and so many other bands. And now he's got his own studio. Uh, he's a you know, big-time producer out there in Queens, New York. If you ever need anything, go look up Andy on Facebook. And, you know, right after that, my good buddy Tommy Flanger from Tempest came to fill in and help us out so we could find somebody else. Uh, my drummer, Dave, he was like, I think, 14 at the time, maybe 15. The kid was amazing. I mean, I mean, listen to our tapes. We may have sucked, you know, but Dave was just freaking amazing. I mean, he was an incredible drummer. Tommy helped us out and carried us through that hard time until we struck gold. And we found Mike Fringo, our guitar player. And that's when Stillborn really started. And, you know, we put out a whole bunch of demos. We played all over the place, you know, uh, Albany and Baltimore. We played at CBGBs and Streets and New Rochelle. We had the time of our lives, man, you know. Almost played Washington, D.C. I know Mike is going to tell me, let it go. <laughs> but Terry disappeared before the show, and we never got to play live. I had to get that out there, Mike. I'm sorry. But hardcore became my new world right then, and I never forgot about metal. I was, I'm, I'm a metalhead, but I just needed stuff that was harder and faster, and that's what I came across. And one of the first bands I saw was Agnostic Front. I think it was at the Ritz, and it's just seen this mosh pit going. And moshing at a hardcore show wasn't like it turned into when the heavy metal crowd got into it, when S.O.D. started, and they kind of crossed over the metal and the hardcore. It became a whole different thing. It wasn't like it was at a hardcore show. Nobody was looking to hurt anybody. It wasn't violent. It was just a way of dancing and expressing yourselves, and I hated what metal did to it. I really did, you know. It just kind of ruined it. But Agnostic Front were the first band I saw, and that just turned me on. And Stillborn was formed, and that's the rest is history. The next couple of years, we bounced around the hardcore scene and the metal scene. And let me get on some hardcore tunes for you right now. First up, the band that got me going, Agnostic Front, United and Strong.
Jed Terra with only 13, getting ugly and proud there. Those guys, I mean, they were like uh, partners in crime back in the 80s. I mean, I feel like any show that Jed Terra was on, we won with them. We traveled together. We played a lot together. They were great. And Terry's friends, uh, Jason and Mark, they were playing together in a band out in uh, Rockaway where they lived at the time. And uh, I remember Paul and Blake, uh, I forgot, I don't remember who played drums and bass with them at the time, but they had left the band, the bass playing drummer. And Terry kind of introduced them to uh, Mark and Jason, and that turned into, you know, the sheer terror that we know and love today. So that was pretty good. And uh, like I said, we've been good friends with them ever since then. And I want to thank Johnny Death Thrasher, who found a whole bunch of great pictures that they took of us at the Brick and Wood in Connecticut back in the day, and an interview that he had from his magazine. <laughs> I mean, thank God I'm not the only one that still collects and saves stuff, you know. So thank you, Johnny, for posting that and putting it up. And head over to Facebook and like the Stillborn page. Uh, it's up and running. You know, Mike Fringle, my guitar player, has been doing a lot of work on it, posting things. So give it a like. These were great times back then, you know, I have to tell you. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in 2009, Punk Records, Jason, who owns the company, uh, got in touch with us and says, you know, I remember getting your demo tape when I was in California. Somebody had it, and I I took a copy of it, and uh, I've been looking for you guys ever since then. I want to put out a record. So a couple of years ago, he released an album of the band called Answers Left Unquestioned. It's all of our demo tapes from like 85 until we broke up in 1989. Uh, he remastered them, put them on. You can't remaster them so much. <laughs> you know, they recorded on the dime back in the day. But uh, he did the best he could with them, and it came out to be great. And he has it on vinyl record. It's in red vinyl and on black vinyl. There's a CD out. You can also download all the digital of it on uh, CD Baby, Amazon, iTunes. And I want to thank him for doing that for us. It was like a dream come true, you know, having that album out there. And he also included a live gig we did uh, for Pat Duncan on WFMU, his radio show, back on 91.1 back in the day. Uh, he included the whole thing on there. And it's a real fun show that we did playing live on the air. A lot of great memories. And I'm glad that, you know, I'm still in touch with all the guys in the band. And at least Mike and myself are on Facebook. we got to get the other guys on us. So we can keep in touch more often. But we're going to get together soon. And who knows where that will lead, right? You never know. But let me get on a tune off that record and off the last demo tape we recorded, which really never had a name. I called it Scorn of Absence. That's what I was playing with at the time when we were recording it. But like I said, we broke up right after that because, you know, it was the late 80s. We were all moving on with different things. Terry graduated college. Yeah, I started working full-time at Con Edison. Mike had things going on, and, you know, it just didn't have time for the band anymore. Not because of anything bad, just life moved on, and we kind of went with it. But I remember our last show... At Streets, a New Rochelle, New York. It was a great gig. And that same weekend, we headlined our first gig at uh, CBGB. So some great times over there. And that's how we close out the 80s with uh, some stillborn.
All right, there's my old band, Still Bomb. It's Zaya Bug. I said, hello to the Facebook page and like it. I know the Thursday show is usually an hour long, but I figure since this is our 500th episode, and I want to play everything that I can, and I would have to do a 30-year-long episode to get every song on and every band that I've loved over the years. So we're just touching on things here and there. But we got about 15 minutes left. I want to remind everybody this Sunday night, we're kicking off September. It'll be our five-year anniversary month. Uh, have the show coming up in a few weeks. We have Steve Jawalowicz from... Beyond Fallen and Ian Dick from Soldier this Sunday night. So don't forget to tune in at six o'clock. Right now we got like I said, we got fifteen minutes left in the show. Even though the hardcore metal scene kind of imploded upon itself in the early nineties, I never stopped listening to it. From the day I started till today, I still play my music. I never followed trends. I never went with the new metal, the rap metal, the grunge, all that other crap. I hated the nineties and I hate everything it brought out of it. I shouldn't say I hated the nineties. Musically I hated the nineties, but the nineties brought me the greatest joys of my life. That was meeting my wife. In 1991, and, and my, my kids, my son and my daughter, who I'm proud to say, especially with my son, he's a diehard metalhead through and through. My daughter, she likes metal, she likes disco, she likes everything. But, you know, she'll play Metallica and she'll play Lady Gaga on the, same, <laughs> on the same player. But I'm glad that both of them are into heavy metal and hard rock, especially my son, who I was able to take to his first show in 2004. And that was Motorhead, Dio, and Iron Maiden at Madison Square Garden. So... I'm going to get on some tunes from the bands off that show, and that'll give us enough time for maybe one more track, and we'll wrap up the show after that. Like I said, I can't touch on everything, so we're just bouncing around here and there now. From the 2004 show, these are the bands that played. I bought some Motorhead.
things that our eyes can't see There are sounds that our ears can't hear Something bigger out there Something divine Something good that could change our minds Something pure on the other side To lead us safe from
had that was attacking with Disciple off that demo, and before that, Pretty Major Enter Forevermore, and I played that because that was a song my daughter picked to dance with me at her Sweet Sixteen party, so it means a lot to me. And we followed up with Attack because when I started this show in 2008, Mike Sabatini was the first guest we had on here. He was like the third episode we ever did. And if it wasn't for Mike, who knows if we would have had any guests after that. So I want to thank those guys. We're down to the last tune. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Don't forget to come back Sunday night at 6 p.m. And it was a two-hour show today, I know. But I had to get in all that music. And this next song, I never played the same band twice on my show ever. But this next song goes out to my wife. Because you heard me earlier say how all those girls were the, <laughs> the greatest love of my life and the first love of my life. And nothing ever panned out with those girls. But I was a stupid little kid. But I did meet the one of my dreams back in 1991. And that was my wife, who I love dearly. And I don't know if she feels the same about me most of the time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she does. And how I married the white Donna Summer, the disco queen is beyond me. Because my wife does not like heavy metal at all. But she is my biggest fan and supporter and always has been. And without her, I can never do this show. Uh, so this tune goes out to her. It's one of the only metal tunes or rock tunes that she likes. And it's kind of light, but it is Black Sabbath. It's all right. This goes out for my honey. Here you go, sweetheart.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.